0: Welcome to Beyond the Bench, the podcast produced by the North Carolina Judicial College at the UNC School of Government. I'm your host, Jeff Welty, director of the North Carolina Judicial College and a faculty member here at the school. Our goal is to bring you interesting interviews with people who work in or with the court system, including judges, lawyers, academics, and others. This first season of Beyond the Bench focuses on criminal justice. On today's show, my colleague Shay Denning explores the procedures and punishments associated with impaired driving and asks whether they are effective in addressing the problem. After a break, I talk with my colleague Jamie Markham about the concept of absconding from probation, and we discuss a couple of recent appellate cases regarding absconding. Be sure to stay tuned at the end of the podcast to hear a bit about what we have in store for our next episode. Without further ado, let's hear from Shay.
1: I'm Shay Denning, and I'm on the faculty of the School of Government. I work in the area of motor vehicle law. That means I spend a lot of time talking to people in the court system about the criminal offense of driving while impaired. Policymakers, activists, law enforcement officers, and prosecutors in this state, like in all of the other states, have spent decades combating what many view as an epidemic of impaired driving. And there's no question that we've made strides in that area. DWI arrests nationally are down 25% from 20 years ago. Fewer people die in North Carolina each year as a result of crashes involving impaired drivers. For five straight years, the number of DWI charges in the state has declined. Have we licked the problem? Far from it. Last year, there were nearly 50,000 charges of DWI in this state. Most of those charges were for misdemeanor driving while impaired. DWI is generally punished as a misdemeanor, but those sentences pack a punch. I sometimes wonder how much the general public knows about the punishment for DWI. I asked one of the people I interviewed for this podcast what he thought about that. You're about to hear from someone I'm going to refer to as Paul. He's been convicted of DWI twice in North Carolina. He agreed to talk to me on tape about that, but he asked that I not use his real name.
2: No, I mean, I doubt that your average 18 or 19-year-old knows what's going to happen if they get a DUI. I'm sure they know that it's not going to be good. I mean, I'm sure they know that it's more than getting... You know, a drinking ticket or a speeding ticket or something like that. Right. Um, and I knew that what I was doing was wrong. Obviously, you know, I knew that if I get caught, you know, I'm gonna be screwed. And I think that obviously everybody knows that. But does everybody know that you lose your license for a year? Does everybody know that you got to pay a thousand dollars in fines? Does everybody know you got to do a debts? You know, the victims impact panel. I'm sure that they don't.
3: Right. Um.
2: You know, but right. I. I, I wouldn't know. I mean, my friends generally know, but granted, I try to be as, you know, good of a cautionary tale as possible. That, you know,
4: <laughs> Don't do if this. If you do this,
2: yeah, if you do this, look at me. That's what you have to look forward to. Right. So I think that a lot of my friends know, but, you know, I have no way of knowing if people, if people would know that or not.
1: Here are a few things about DWI sentencing that I'm not sure everyone knows. Most people convicted of DWI are placed on probation. Okay, you probably did know that or at least could have guessed it, but how about this? When you're put on probation, you must be assessed by a mental health professional. The person will interview you to see if you are chemically dependent. After the assessment is finished, you'll have to either attend an alcohol drug education class or you will have to be treated by a mental health professional and you'll have to pay for it. When you get arrested, if you blow a .08 or higher or if you refuse to blow, your license is going to be taken on the spot and you won't be able to drive for at least 30 days. When you are convicted, If you are convicted, you'll lose your license for an entire year. Some people convicted of misdemeanor DWI go to jail. The maximum sentence for this misdemeanor offense is three years imprisonment. You may have to go to jail even if this is your first DWI. In fact, even if it's your first ever criminal offense. If you're convicted of driving while impaired and you have a person under 18 in your car at the time, you must serve at least 30 days in jail. There are only two ways to get around that. Serving 30 days of inpatient treatment that you pay for or being monitored for four months by an electronic bracelet that collects your sweat and tests it for alcohol. On top of that, you'll still have to go to jail for 10 of the 30 days. To get the benefit of that break, you'll have to pay for the four months of electronic monitoring, and that will cost more than $1,000. Regardless of whether you spring for inpatient treatment or continuous alcohol monitoring, a misdemeanor DWI charge is going to be expensive. Unless you qualify for a court-appointed attorney, your legal fees will run in the thousands of dollars. Then there are fines. Those can be up to $10,000 in the most serious misdemeanor DWI cases. There are court costs. The court costs for district court are currently $290. Probation supervision fees are $40 per month. If you're lucky enough to get community service rather than jail time, there's a $250 fee for that. And that substance abuse assessment that I mentioned earlier costs $100. The alcohol and drug education class costs $160. Your insurance premiums will go up. The fee to end that initial license revocation is $100, and the fee to get a limited driving privilege is $100. Then there's the matter of the criminal record. DWIs may not be expunged in North Carolina, and deferred prosecution is not an option. I was curious about how these sanctions affected people convicted of misdemeanor DWI. In terms of general deterrence, I'd say they're pretty scary, but obviously they did not deter the tens of thousands of defendants charged last year with DWI. I also wondered which sanctions had the greatest impact on defendants, so I set out to talk to some folks who had been convicted of DWI. I learned pretty quickly that even the people most intimately affected by DWI cannot articulate the sanction that served as their wake-up call. For some folks, it takes more than one DWI charge for the seriousness of, of the behavior and for the consequences to soak in. Here's what Paul had to say about that.
2: Honestly, I got uh, really lucky. You know, it came in a point in my life where, you know, um, my drinking clearly had become a problem that I was oblivious to. Um, you know, I didn't associate me having a problem with drinking um, with the DUIs. I associated the DUIs more so with being in the wrong place at the wrong time um, rather than identifying the fact that I was drinking excessively and the DUIs were just one of a number of issues I had created for myself um, due to my drinking. Right. And so that was really eye-opening. I went to AA um, for a while. Um, I saw um, a substance abuse counselor here in Chapel Hill um, who was really great and kind of helped me, you know, reposition myself in life, I guess you could say, you know, change some things about what I was doing and where I was going. Um you know, I mean, uh, to, to have two DUIs at the age of 23 is not only you know eye opening, but it can be really preventative to things that um, you want to do in life. You know, um, luckily it didn't prevent me from getting into law school, but it easily could have. And I'm sure there are places that rejected me based solely on the fact that um, I have two DUIs.
1: Paul said that in general, he thinks people are more aware these days of the risk posed by DWI.
2: I think to a greater extent, people are more cognizant of the negative like, impacts on other people or on yourself that drinking and driving has now. I think that people are much more aware of, you know, deaths associated to, to driving while well impaired. I think people are much more aware of that side of things. You know, what can really happen, not so much... You know, am I going to go to jail? You know, all that stuff. But I think people are a lot more um, aware of the negative impact that they can have on other people. And I think it took me, you know, until getting a second DUI and getting, you know, the more severe penalties and having to do and having to take a, a, a real look at my life and ask myself, you know, am I a different person than I always, you know, envisioned myself being, um, and make some hard decisions that I really, you know, came to terms with how terrible of a thing it is to drink and drive, how literally you just have no control over, you know, what happens to you or to anybody else. Um, And so I think that that today is much more visible than it probably ever was.
1: Sobriety courts are one option some districts use to deter impaired drivers from repeating their behavior. Defendants generally land in treatment court only after they've had more than one criminal charge for DWI. I talked to the mother of a young woman who racked up three DWI charges in four years. Her daughter was sent to sobriety court for the second charge, but it didn't prevent the third. The mother, Kim, who asked that I not use her last name, said some aspects of sobriety court were helpful, but others were not
4: you go there you have no idea this is happening and they put you on this curfew. and a lot of people needed to go to work the next day but they gave them these very strict hours and before you had a chance to say well these are my working hours they it was it was almost impossible for some of these people and they weren't all like my daughter who was 19 and still lived at home and had a family who could transport mm-hmm. her and help her through this um some people were 40 and they got thrown into it and they had to work and they had to get to work and it just some of them, it just threw them into an overnight nightmare. Some of them had children, and you know that's, and they were, uh, in a in a little way, they were. I would say they were a little brutal. Maybe that's too strong. Rough.
3: Mm-hmm. They
4: immediately had no patience for whatever was going on in your life because you were drinking and driving, and you could have killed the whole city while you were driving. I mean, that was kind of it was, <laughs> it was just, it, w- it was rough. And and then the man who was in charge. I couldn't call him and get a piece of information if my daughter was at work, and he was, nope, she did this, she's got to handle this, I can't talk to you. It was it was rough like that, is what I want to say. And I guess maybe they have to be, and, and another point I want to say is that it was a one-size-fits-all, mm-hmm. but that doesn't work, you know, and I don't know how they could gear it to every, every person. I mean, my daughter being underage, she was in a different category than someone who was 40, who should have way known better, and... I I don't know that's just a thought there that it was a one size fits all and uh, it just doesn't Um, so uh, and then the breathalyzer in her room was every time it beeped you know she had to breathe in and on certain hours and, and, and that was good because that kept her from drinking she wasn't allowed to drink and for that I was thankful you know that part of it I was very very thankful that she wasn't allowed to drink at all
1: Treatment is the same. One person I spoke to said he had been through treatment centers seven times, including Dark Cherry, which is the Division of Adult Corrections Substance Abuse Facility in Goldsboro, three times. He said that ultimately the teachers at Dark Cherry made a difference. Here's what Paul had to say about treatment.
2: Having gone to rehab, the specific rehab that I went to, um, it's called First at Blue Ridge. It is a mix of DPS patients who are people that get out of jail early um, to go to this rehab facility. Typical, typically, for an entire year, they go. Um, and it's a work program. So, you know, it's not like, you know, you get a, it's not passages at Malibu. You
3: mm-hmm. get up at
2: 5 a.m. every day and you got a job. Everybody's got a job. Even though I was only there for 10 days. I had a job around the facility. I just didn't leave like the, most of the other guys did. And and being there just for 10 days, I can say that, you know, here at UNC, I learned a lot of things. But it's difficult to learn things that people who have been down their luck in life know at UNC because no one that goes to UNC is really in the gutter of life, I guess you could say. Um, and so these guys would tell me about, you know, how they, you know, these are 50-year-old, 60-year-old guys, you know, how they ruined their lives and how they went to jail for whatever. Not all of it was DUIs. You know, some of it was drugs. Some of it was – there was a guy in there for murder um, in my rehab facility. You know, he's not in jail. He was in my rehab facility. So – and even that guy, you know, um, they were just really insightful in ways that I probably would not have had the opportunity to learn those things because I can't imagine – seeking out those kind of people to hang out with had I not been put in that situation. So do I think that the inpatient portion of it specifically, since I only did it for the 10 days, you know, changed my life somehow? I'd be lying to you if I said it did. I mean, that would sound really great, but anybody that tells you that 10 days changed their life probably is not being honest. Um, but what I do think really impacted me was the stories that people could tell me you know there was a guy in there that was really successful bank executive and now you know he's got 6 DUI's and he is in this rehab facility for an entire year just trying not to go to jail and nobody in his family talks to him anymore and so i think it was those stories of it doesn't seem that bad for you right now but this is where you can end up and if you don't want to end up here then you definitely want to take steps to change the way that you're living your life And so, I would say my personal experience, I got a lot more out of going to inpatient.
4: Kim,
1: likewise, was skeptical about the benefits of treatment.
4: I think maybe the classes helped a little, but if they don't stay in them, you know, like once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, if they don't stay in them and and are keep reminded of, of the problems and where she is, I... I think for my daughter, she's got the opinion, oh, I'm over that, I'm better, and I, but, but I don't know. Right. So at I, times the answer, yes, I think they have helped her, but then she acts like, oh, I don't need that because I'm over that. And maybe because I can't drive, I don't need that. I don't know. Kim also didn't
1: think her daughter's time in jail had an impact. She just sat in Raleigh Jail
4: for a week and that did absolutely nothing.
1: A few years ago, some researchers in New Mexico studied how DWI offenders viewed the effectiveness of their sanctions and treatment. The most commonly reported profoundly negative experience that participants mentioned was the financial cost of the DWI conviction. Court mandated treatment got mixed reviews. The assessment of its worth depended on whether the person felt that he or she needed treatment and whether the person was matched well with a provider and treatment program. Driver's license sanctions have been heralded as one of the most effective DWI deterrent strategies. Driver's licenses of all defendants convicted of DWI are revoked for at least a year when they're convicted. If the person has a prior conviction, the revocation lasts longer. The second term of revocation is four years, and the person ultimately may end up permanently revoked, depending on their prior record. Not having a driver's license is tough. Again, here's Paul.
2: Regardless of whether it was my first or my second, I'd still say the revocation was the most impactful part. I mean, it just makes everyday life so much more difficult.
4: Kim agrees. The financial strain on her has been really, really severe, um, and um, even now, it, her whole life. And, and I think I'm pretty sure she's all out of the foolishness. I hope, <laughs> but not being able to drive has just hurt her so badly. Um, and and I always wanted to say, let these people, so some of them, I don't know, put the breathalyzer on their car, but. If they can't drive, her whole life almost collapsed there because she couldn't get anywhere. She couldn't get to work. She couldn't get to college classes. And it, that fall of 2014 was really, really rough. I, and she was then living in Raleigh. It was hard for us to help get her to class or anything like that. So that was just really, really hard. And maybe that's what needed to happen. I don't know. I just wish they would be able to drive still somehow with the breathalyzer.
1: People in the business call the breathalyzer that Kim is referring to ignition interlock. It's a device that attaches to a vehicle's ignition. To turn on the engine, the driver must first provide a breath sample. If that sample registers positive for alcohol, the car's engine will not operate. Some experts say that ignition interlock should be required for every defendant convicted of DWI. Currently, North Carolina law requires that defendants who drive while impaired with a particularly high alcohol concentration, .15 or more, have ignition interlock installed on their vehicles before they may drive again. It also requires ignition interlock for repeat offenders. Drivers who are required to obtain ignition interlock must pay a private provider for that service. I also found another finding from that New Mexico study interesting. The study reported that people who said they felt shamed or stupid, afraid or anxious, or who acknowledged their own responsibility in connection with an earlier DWI arrest were less likely to be among those who reported having recently driven while impaired. I asked Paul whether he thought he'd be able to put this experience behind him in a few years.
2: You know, it's one of those things that you're really confident about, knowing that you're not getting your license back for a while. You know, it's something that on a day-to-day basis, you know, I can be like, yeah, I'm ready to get my license back. Like, This is great. But then when I sit down and think about it and I think back to when I got my license back from my first DUI, you know, it's it's really easy to you know, be really strict about it and be really diligent about it, you know, the first six to eight months. But after a while, if it's something that you allow to become a habit in the past. And it's not something that you have purposely broken as a habit. It's something that naturally I fear will start to creep back slowly into my mind. Um, But given what I know about getting a third DUI, I think that that kind of goes back to what we were talking about with, you know, what are the penalties, given what I know about getting a third DUI in the next any time ever in my life, you know, um, I think that the fear of that is what will, you know, keep me diligent. Um, You know, I don't think that it would be a problem for me ever again. You know, I've taken – I've done a lot of different things to try and change the way that I've been living my life, but naturally I think it would be naive of me to say, given the fact that I haven't driven in, you know, 14 months to say, oh, yeah, you know, I'll be fine. You know, I'll, I'll be I'll be great. You know, I have no way of knowing, but you know, I'm certainly diligent about, you know, the steps that I've taken and the, the place that I'm putting myself in in the future, given what I know and trying to put myself in positions where I won't feel like I ever need, for whatever reason, to um, – drink and drive again so my hope is that i'll put it behind me you know i think that to a large extent in terms of putting it behind me not having the stigma of having duis not having it hang over my head the way that it did for the first you know probably 10 months after i got arrested just this stigma of feeling honestly kind of like just you know for lack of a better term a shitty person um i think that i've done that you know um I've done, you know, a lot of work to try and, like I said, be as cautionary of a tale as possible to people that I know. um, You know, I stopped drinking for a long time. um, And so I'm thinking that all those things combined and also just a diligence, um, it will put it behind me. But um, naturally, it's something that I'm always fearful of. And I think that being fearful of it is what will, you know, hopefully keep me on the right track.
1: I'm not surprised that my conversations with a handful of people did not reveal a single key strategy for doing away with impaired driving once and for all. If there were a silver bullet for eradicating this behavior, someone would have fired it by now. Based on the folks I talked to, I'd say all of the current sanctions play a role in reducing incidents of driving while impaired. Policymakers, I am sure will continue to consider whether other responses such as increased requirements for ignition interlock, greater access to public transportation, additional administrative sanctions, and other potential responses are advisable.
0: This is your host Jeff Welty back again. That concludes Shay's segment, but that's not all we have to offer today. In the second segment of this episode, I interview my colleague, Jamie Markham, the School of Government's expert on sentencing and corrections, about what it means to abscond from probation. We hope you enjoy it. This is Jeff Welty with the School of Government, and I'm here with my colleague, Jamie Markham. We're going to talk about probation and specifically absconding from probation. Jamie, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk about this. Thanks for having me. So to set up the background, after the Justice Reinvestment Act... Uh, a court could only immediately revoke a, defendant, a defendant's probation in two circumstances. One is if the defendant commits a new crime, and
3: the other is if the defendant absconds from supervision. Is that basically correct? That's right. Those are the two things a person can be revoked for so on their first violation.
0: So as I understand it, there wasn't even a statutory definition of absconding. That wasn't a statutory term until the Justice Reinvestment Act uh, but now we have a statute that defines absconding as willfully avoiding supervision or willfully making one's whereabouts unknown
3: to the officer. That's right. Uh, probation officers have used the word absconding for a long time, but, but before 2011, before justice reinvestment, it was a sort of a creation of their policy. It was a, sort of a terminology they used, but not part of the statute.
0: Okay, so I suppose questions arise with this statutory definition about exactly how much avoiding supervision or how much making one's whereabouts unknown a, an offender has to do before they become an absconder.
3: Right, and, and so since we've had this uh, this definition in the case law now for a few years, we're starting to get some cases that tell us uh, sort of how much is enough to to be absconding.
0: Perfect. So let's jump into those. The first case I wanted to talk about is State v. Jakiko Johnson and that's a case where a, a probationer essentially missed one appointment with his supervising officer. The officer then said, "Hey, you're an absconder." And the court of appeals said, "No, missing one appointment isn't absconding." Is that a fair summary of the case?
3: Yeah, I think that's about right. I mean, the 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 officer was visiting the offender uh, at his home said hey I, you know want you to come to an office visit tomorrow the offender said i, I can't do it i don't have a ride and so the the the, the officer knew he wasn't going to be there knew knew where he was he was at home but the, you know the officer filed a violation report for absconding offender got revoked for absconding but as you said the court of appeals reversed said it has to be something more than that so in jekiko johnson's case the probationer missed
0: one appointment, and the court said that's not absconding. Do we know where you crossed the Rubicon into absconding? In other words, if he'd missed two appointments, or three, or five, or was unsupervised for two weeks, where does it become absconding and not just a technical violation of missing
3: an appointment? Sure. I, well, I guess we don't know the exact number, uh, but we we do know from an, another case decided on the same day actually, and it involved another another defendant whose last name was Johnson that. That failing to check in with your officer at all for three months in that case was enough to qualify as absconding. That that wasn't, um, you know, that that was making your your whereabouts unknown or making yourself unavailable to the to the point that that it was proper to to revoke that offender for absconding. That case was State v. Nicholas
0: Johnson, and am I right? The defendant in that case essentially moved from one county to another didn't tell his probation officer, was totally out of touch, incommunicado for a period of three months, and the court said, we've gone beyond technical violation territory there. Right. Okay. So there's one more case that I think we should talk about, and that's the case of State v.
3: Williams. What's the basic factual setup there? Right. So I do think that's one that kind of we find ourselves in that middle ground. It was, de- it was decided last, last fall in September. And, um, and, and as far as the factual setup, it, it, it was facts that honestly, it, had you asked me about the, before the case, I would have thought it was probably enough to be absconding, even under this new definition. The, uh, the defendant re- really didn't have any settled living arrangement in North Carolina. He was regularly traveling back and forth to New Jersey, and the probation officer knew that. He'd missed a few appointments with the probation officer. But, but the thing was, and what became important in the case, is he was accessible by phone. And he, uh, you know, anytime he talked to his officer, he was honest about where he was, about his whereabouts. The officer asked him, why aren't you at this meeting? You'd say, I'm in New Jersey. So um, at least as far as the whereabouts unknown kind of absconding, it, it wasn't that. The officer knew where he was. But what about the avoiding supervision prong of the absconding definition? If the
0: guy's out of state and he's not coming to his appointments, how does the fact that he's picking up his phone satisfy his obligation to remain under supervision?
3: Right, and, and and honestly, that's the part of it that that does surprise surprise me. I would think, you know, be, being merely being out of the jurisdiction is not an absconding violation. That's a a failure to remain in the jurisdiction. It's a a technical violation. But this, you know, this probationer is back and forth to to New Jersey you know, more often than a homesick freshman at Duke, and. You, you know you would think at some point, if the officer can't access the offender, even if the officer knows where the person is, that there's you know the, the officer can't do the kind of supervision that uh, the court would would like him or her to do. I wondered
0: as I was looking at Williams, what the limiting uh, what, the, what kind of the outer boundary is of that case. So in Williams, the probationer was available by phone, even though he was in New Jersey. If he was in Brazil and sent an email every week or two saying, still in Brazil, enjoying the Olympics, are we limited to saying those are technical violations, or can we say, yeah, he's absconded, even though he's re- re- remained to some degree in contact with his supervising officer?
3: Right. I, I guess I don't know how much it's important sort of how far you go versus... I mean, there were facts in the case that he was back and forth. So if if you were back and forth to, to Brazil or London or... or you know, or Canada, you know, maybe that would make it okay. He did eventually come to a meeting. He didn't sort of give a sense that he was indefinitely gone and not coming back. He did um, eventually get to a meeting with his officer. So, you know, we don't we don't know from the cases we have so far. Uh, I'm, I'm not prepared to say that every absence, no matter how far it is, can be cured by the occasional check in or text message. Uh, But I don't think we have a a case that sort of clues us into the to to the whereabouts, you know, how far is too far. Okay, so summing up where I think we are, the Jakiko
0: Johnson case says missing one appointment isn't absconding and presumably that you know, it could extend somewhat beyond that. The Nicholas Johnson case says being incommunicado for months is absconding and the Williams case suggests that even if you're not around, being in contact with your probation officer accounts for something and goes into the absconding, uh, it's, it's kind of a factor to be considered in whether a person's absconding. Let me move on, though, and ask you about something you mentioned earlier, which is the probation policy around absconding. Does probation have a, a definition or a policy, or do they define absconding in a way that's more detailed than
3: how the statute defines it? They do, and and they have for for many years, and like as I've said before, they've um, this is a concept that's existed for them for for quite some time, and and even under their policy, it w- you know even before the Chiquico Johnson case, we I think we would have known that it would be improper to call somebody an absconder after one missed appointment. The, under their policy, the officer is supposed to you know, for example, visit the offender's residence in both the daytime and the evening to try to find them. They're supposed to try to call. They're supposed to contact relatives and associates, visit the workplace, uh, contact law enforcement, check the jail. Um, and, and the the policy articulates a timeline under which, you know, all these things are supposed to happen. It's between five or 10 days, depending on what type of offender you're talking about. And and if the person turns up within that time frame, the policy says they're not an absconder. So it for it to all happen so fast, for it to be one missed appointment like that, it's just not enough of an investigation, and, and speaks to the idea that the absconding it carries with it this meaning of of really trying to, to hide oneself, to make oneself unavailable, and it's, it's more than just the missed appointment or, or even crossing state lines. What's the significance of probation's
0: policy about absconding when a matter has been called to the attention of the court. For example, can a probationer who's been charged with absconding essentially raise a probation officer's failure to comply with the policy as a defense by saying, hey, the policy requires that they check with my relatives, but they didn't do that, so I'm not properly categorized as an absconder"? or is probation's policy and the statutory definition two separate things and the judge applies the statute without regard to the
3: policy? I think they are two separate things. I think it, you know, there, there is some sense. I mean, I think it's certainly worth discussing whether this violation should have ever gotten to court in the first place. It's, it's a, a line of questioning that a a probationer or his or her her lawyer might want to, um, you know, to go down that road. But ultimately, I mean, this, this is a relatively new statutory definition. We have these few cases that we've talked about and, you know, I, I, my general sense is that probation's approach to it is entitled to some deference about who they think absconders are, but now it's a statute, and I think with a, a relatively clean slate, even in spite of these cases, uh, a trial court judge could say, no, I, I think you were avoiding supervision even if the full 10-day investigation didn't happen, and, uh, and to conclude as a legal matter that, it, that, it was, that the person is an absconder within the meaning of the statute.
0: Well, great. I think that's pretty much what we needed on an absconding, interesting conversation. And again, thanks for spending a few minutes talking about it on the podcast. My pleasure. This is Jeff Welty back at the School of Government. That concludes this episode of Beyond the Bench. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, where you can listen to all of our podcast episodes. Most importantly, leave us a review. Positive feedback helps other people find out about our show. If you have any topics you think we should cover or people you think should be interviewed here on Beyond the Bench, pitch us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email me at welty at sog.unc.edu or producer Danielle Rivenbark at daniellep at sog.unc.edu. More information about the show is available on the podcast website, podcast.sog.unc.edu. I hope to see you back in two weeks with our next episode of Beyond the Bench. That will be the last episode in this inaugural season, and will feature Jamie Markham interviewing Ann Presythe, who's the Director of Community Corrections for North Carolina. This is your host, Jeff Welty, podcast adjourned.